everyone and welcome to the Prince Library Lounge, where we discuss library insights with library professionals from all over the world. I am your host, my name is Vicky Walbarn and I am joining you today with two great guests for episode one of the Prince Library Lounge. On today's episode, we will be discussing library neutrality with Jane Cowell and Nick Paul. We hope you enjoy the discussion, so let's get to it. Princh Library Lounge is brought to you by Princh, the preferred printing solution in Scandinavia. Princh is a user-friendly printing solution made for libraries with libraries. Check out Princh.com for more details. Today we're very privileged and very honoured to have Jane and Nick join us um, for our first episode of the Prince Library Lounge. So what I'm going to do is just throw it over to them to introduce themselves. So maybe Jane, could you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Certainly, Vicky. Uh, I'm Jane Cowell. Uh, I'm currently the Chief Executive Officer for the Yarra Plenty Regional Library Service, which is a service that um, provides library services for three councils in Victoria in Australia. Uh, I have over 20 years, that's all I'm admitting to, Vicky, over 20 <laughs> years of um, experience working in public libraries in Australia, and I'm passionately committed uh, to the value and impact that public libraries make in their communities, and a, a, a real advocate uh, across Australia for uh, the role that public libraries have, and I've had significant uh, experience in doing uh, national and state research on the return of investment of libraries, the impact of public library programs, and uh, that kind of research. So that's me. Yeah, thank you so much. And Nick? Fantastic, and uh, really great to be online with, with Jane. I'm a big, big fan and follower of your work. Uh, so I'm Nick Poole. I'm Chief Executive of SILIP. Uh, we are the UK's Library Association based here in London, but working across the whole of the UK. Uh, I similarly, I'll admit to 20 years and, and sort of put it around there, uh, experience, um, really focused on open knowledge. So uh, a lot of my work has been working with libraries, museums, uh, cultural organisations and the government around um, democratising access to knowledge and information. Uh, I'm on the board of the UK chapter of Wikipedia over here, similarly working on, on kind of open knowledge communities. So really excited to talk about today's topic. Perfect. Well, thank you both so much. And yeah, like I said, we're very honoured that you're both joining us today. I'm very excited to get going with the conversation. And um, so as we've discussed, uh, the topic today is library neutrality. Um, that's been a big topic, um, certainly over recent years uh, within the library world. So what I'll just start off by doing is by just giving a very general definition of neutrality. Um, so what we have here is that neutrality is the state of not supporting or helping either side in a conflict, disagreement, and just basically being impartial. Um, and really with that, I just want to throw it over to Jane to kind of see what your take is um, on library neutrality uh, so uh, I take the point of the message about libraries being neutral and I think in terms of a political statement or taking a political um, 
stance on, you know, a political party in a democracy is we certainly need to be neutral. I don't think we can advocate for one party over another. Everybody in a democracy needs to be informed to make their own choice. And I think libraries are ideally placed to make sure that the information is truthful and factful uh, to allow people to make a decision. However, I think a lot of the debate has been moved on to social issues and there I don't think libraries can be neutral. In, in actual fact, our statements, our, uh, the Public Library Manifesto, even for the Australian Library Information Association Freedom of Access Statement, that is not neutral. We say that we actively contribute to social inclusion. If we're going to actively contribute to social inclusion, then we are going to have to take an active stance for those people who are excluded. And we cannot stand on the bias, on the you know sort of fence around exclusion. Um, our statement also says that we want to enable people to contribute to the economic well-being of their families and the nation. Now, again, we cannot do that for everyone. Our budgets mean that, you know, sort of we have to make a choice and we make a choice of where we make the most impact. I think a lot of us have over years made a choice around what is easiest, but I think now we really are making active and proactive choices about where our learning programs where our access, where our Learn English programs are, can make the most impact with migrant, refugee families. You know, that kind of active social inclusion is part of a, a library's business. And I don't think that's about being neutral. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, totally. And Nick, what about you? What's your take on library neutrality? If, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. Uh, probably not going to make for a great conflict-based podcast, but I would agree with pretty much everything uh, Jane has, has just said. Uh, I mean, we live uh, globally and nationally in, in an age of great social and political turmoil, turbulence, change, however you want to characterise it. And in that kind of environment, nothing is really neutral. You know, the, the decision not to act is in itself uh, a political act. And, and I think we would always argue that libraries were never neutral. I mean, even the basic idea of freedom of access to information, the universal empowerment of citizens to learn and to question, uh, those are in themselves small p political uh, decisions. But, you know, I, I think very much, as, as Jane says, universality in our library services is absolutely vital. Um, but I sometimes think we confuse universality with neutrality, and, and they're not the same thing. I also think as, as ethical librarians, information professionals, we have to start to oppose um, some of the polarity that we're seeing in society, that people take very polar positions and presume uh, what the other side, and it is all about sides in our political debate over here at the moment, uh, do or don't mean. And I think there is a, a central role for us to be advocating for evidence-based policy, uh, for the role of evidence and dialogue in public life. But again, I, I don't think that's about neutrality. I think it's actually an, an activist role that we have as librarians for a, a better, more open, more inclusive world, which is based on, on knowledge, learning, evidence and, and dialogue. And I think also, uh, Nick, that libraries have a place to play to bring those two sides together. Um, whether it is around, you know, sort of a debate, whether it is around um, evidence of 
um, we're all human, you know, sort of so if you're polarised by race or you're polarised uh, by opinion, you're polarised by <coughs> assumptions, I think we can do quite a lot uh, around actively working to build greater understanding across those two divides. One of the key things that uh, my library service is working on is really building into um, our story times a lot of inclusive stories. So making sure that we're talking about refugees, you know, that is a huge issue in Australia. We have the offshore detention, as I'm sure you realise, um, and there is quite a polarised um, segment of the community who is quite racist and quite saying, go home, we're protecting our borders, you know, very right, very right wing, where what we're trying to do is say, I'm a person too, you know, sort of that from a refugee child, um, you know, I'm not a number. And we're actually telling those stories and promoting those stories. And certainly our Australian authors are writing those stories, but we're promoting them in a very um, understanding and educative way around these uh, points of difference. And we also do a um, different families story time where we promote stories around that there's all kinds of families. It is not a traditional marriage family. There are all kinds of families and that all kinds of families have value. So I think we can, we actively, and I, I think all libraries do this, uh, we might not do it with a um, true strategic focus in mind, but we do it because what we're trying to do is to promote tolerance and understanding across those traditional divides. I think that's a, a great way of looking at it. And, and we're really interested in this dialogue that's happening over here at the moment about, you know, what is the libraryness of a library? What What's the unique characteristic that makes it such a, an important place? And when you look around the world at the role that libraries play in their communities, um, you know, we've seen, for example, in South Africa and, and Darfur, um, libraries serving a, a fundamental civic role as places of truth and reconciliation and dialogue. And I think in, in a small way, that's the role that all of us are playing in, in libraries, you know, all over the world every day. But I, I think you hit on something incredibly powerful there about storytelling. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan uh, of an African writer called Chimamanda Adichie who talks about, um, you know, the, the power imbalance of whose story gets told, who has the right to tell a story. And, and I think the really interesting and fairly unique quality about a library is it's a place where you can reconcile those different stories. Everybody's story gets heard, everybody feels safe and empowered. Um, and that, to me, is, is where really big solutions to big problems come from because if you look at issues like some of the the kind of racism and intolerance which is driving behaviors those come from somewhere they came from a feeling of, of fear and insularity uncertainty about the future uh, to an extent uh, a lack of knowledge and understanding and and so i think we have a role uh, to enable those stories to be told but also to educate people uh, in how to learn from the world around them to be perhaps slightly less afraid of things uh, that are different from themselves I, I, I agree, Nick, but I also think that libraries have a, another powerful role that I'm not sure that we're intentionally taking up. And one of it is about those uh, those people, um, you know, sort of, and people who, who do not understand, but who are fearful. 
And one of the reasons that they're fearful or upset is that they feel left out of the community opportunities. The wealth inequality that is happening across the world is huge. Um, the concentrated wealth is in many more fewer uh, families and people and that there is a significant proportion of the community in the UK, in Australia, uh, who are locked out of any prosperity. And they, they feel left out. They feel that um, they, they, have, they don't have that opportunity. There's significant changes in access to jobs. Uh, you know, higher skills are required. Lower manufacturing jobs are not there. Uh, there's a sig significant thinking that in long-term uh, unemployment families uh, and families who have generational unemployment, that good jobs are not for them. Uh, th there's a whole lot of issues around learning and skill development that I think libraries can offer. And when they see the uh, segments of the communities that are given a leg up because, you know, sort of of leftist politics or however you want to describe it, they feel that somebody's taking their place, that they're jumping over what they uh, felt they could be. The crisis in 2008 meant that as many um, older people in Australia lost a significant proportion of money on their superannuation, so can't retire yet don't have access to jobs because they don't have the new skills. So what are we as libraries doing to enable skill development, to discuss these issues, to actually make those people feel inclusive and part of society and also that they can actually um, participate? One of the key issues that I, I really think is an issue is if you do not have access to the internet at home, you cannot do your homework. You can actually not participate in education to your fullest. Now, there's a lot of families that, you know, sort of might have, you know, one gig a month, which is nowhere near enough, you know, of internet access if you have children in high school. As we move to flipped classrooms where you've got to do your, um, your reading and your understanding prior to the active lesson, uh, they are, you know, the need for internet at home is, you know, sort of even higher. Now, what are we as libraries doing about that accessibility? You can say to me, well, we're open till 8pm, but I don't know any teenager who doesn't do their homework until 11pm the night before it's due. So being open till 8pm, you know, sort of is not useful in the terms of a teenager's life. Also, those, that, those families actually do not have planning skill sets of how to plan to get to things in time. They, that's a learned skill. And if you're in a family that doesn't work, that doesn't actually work to a timetable, you never learn those planning skills. So what are we as libraries doing? What are we as libraries uh, collectively thinking about our collections that could go to home? Now, the New York Public Library has worked out how to loan Wi-Fi to the home. Now, obviously, we would not do that, and this is another way where we would not be neutral. We would not do that for a family who could afford it. You know, sort of if we were to actually develop a way of loaning Wi-Fi to the home, it would be for people who were on welfare who had high school children. It would be for a reason and there would be limited resources. So are we actively going about and 
and thinking about these issues of exclusion and learning and access to information in really strategic ways where we actually go uh, to the telcos and say, this is what we want to do, can you help us? And we're not expecting to get it for free, but how do we actually do this in our countries? And I think we need to be you know, really addressing some of those exclusion issues with the people who traditionally we might not like. You know, they might not come to, to our libraries with the values that we espouse. So we have to bring them across and, you know, sort of persuade them with active uh, projects and integration projects and active help that gives them a leg up to help them um, achieve what everybody else can who actually has an income. Yeah, no, I, I would entirely agree. I mean, I think we would completely recognise that the benefits of the permissionless innovation of the web haven't been equally distributed. And so the great sort of channel shift of the last 10 years has actually um, it's enabled to address some forms of inequality, but it's really risking creating new forms of inequality. So we, we talk about areas like information poverty, um, you know, the fact that there, there is a clear connection between uh, opportunity, career development, uh, aspiration and achievement and, and digital access. Um, but there's also things like health literacy and health inequality, inequalities of access to an increasingly digital environment for health and for learning. There's massive risks around uh, a digital divide in, in terms of access, uh, as you say, it's basic access and infrastructure um, to the web. But, you know, if we've got this social obligation to create a, a better, more inclusive, better networked society, then we absolutely have to be activist in identifying the risks of the, the new forms of exclusion and marginalization and then organizing ourselves to target them. But I think one of the mistakes we sometimes make, um, or certainly over here we've made in the past, is creating an agenda around social justice and inclusion that speaks solely to uh, leftist politics. And I think we, we have a, an agenda that needs to be able to speak both to social uh, development and economic development. And in both cases, you know, you've got to have a just society where people aren't digitally excluded. You've also got to have a, a thriving modern economy in which, you know, people need to be able to develop the digital skills to build new forms of enterprise. And I think we've got this incredibly powerful proposition across both social and economic development but we don't always make the economic case uh, we often make the the social case and that's you know it's, it's been really interesting some of the challenges we've been facing at SILIP around um, speaking to both of those audiences uh, because we have to be able to I, I will work with any politician that wants to support and, and empower libraries and, and support their users um, but it's sometimes seen as a betrayal of the principles of social justice to argue that there's also an economic development role for libraries. And and certainly over here, I, th I think we need to be able to celebrate both um, as, as a core part of what we're here to do. I agree, Nick. And one of the key um, projects that I worked on for the State Library of Queensland is called The Business Studio. And it was actually uh, born out of some research around that entrepreneurs needed to learn to stand up before they start up. Oh, I love that. One of the key issues that in, and again, it was within the city that the State Library of Queensland, you know, sort of is in, which is Brisbane, was there was a lot of people with a business idea, but who didn't know what to do as the second step. So a lot of our, and then there was a lot of people who did take that second step, but didn't have the right information 
of where, how to assess whether their business idea was valid or not, and they failed and, you know, sort of used up a lot of money in that failure. So all of that, you know, fail fast, you know, around the startup uh, area is correct. But the point is, if you can get the right information at the right time, you may not have to fail. Uh, you, you can maybe fail quicker uh, or you may not have to fail at all. So one of the, we ran a fortnightly lunchbox forum. We only opened nine to five. Yes, you could co-work. Yes, you had access to business grade Wi-Fi. Yes, we had an entrepreneur in residence as we had a partnership with a co-working uh, business within uh, Brisbane. So all of that access was there and access to learning, to lynda.com, to a business and entrepreneurial collection to learn and it was the highest used collection at the State Library of Queensland at the time. So they read a lot, they learn a lot. Uh, we had with minimal marketing, 700 members, you know, so it was a real and people stayed for a year because they were testing their business idea for a year. So I think libraries can actually play a really real information learning role in partnership with their councils and their their councils economic development advisors around business skills around entrepreneurship for young people around you know sort of a business idea one of the people who came and talked was Taj Babari he became an entrepreneur when he was 11 so he had a business idea he actually acted on it his first check he lied about his age he lied about his um, his address and it went to his neighbour who happened to be a policeman. So, no, that wasn't quite a good idea. But he learned how to be an entrepreneur, and he, at 18 he now has a business talking about being an entrepreneur. So we can actually start this entrepreneurial thinking and think about really investing in how to help people use their skills, market their skills, and also to actually monetize their skills for a business idea. It sounds absolutely fantastic. I mean, I suppose one of the questions that, that often comes up to us is is thinking about neutrality and looking at who we are as librarians, you know, by what right do we make these decisions? And I, I think it's really interesting. I'm not sure the figures are, are exactly the same uh, over um, on your side of the world, but, uh, you know, we have a, a profession that is uh, predominantly white, um, predominantly within a, a, a sort of older uh, age demographic, um, you know, that, that we are really at risk of being slightly monocultural uh, in terms of our, our identity as a workforce. And it's something we're really thinking about hard over here, because I think if we're going to um, set out these agendas uh, and do it in a way that's transparent and accountable, then we've got to take the time to reflect on who we are uh, and then the impact that, that that has on the services that we provide. So we're really starting to, to work very hard over here to target, you know, by, by what right are we making these choices on behalf of the services we're leading? Do we fully reflect uh, the diversity and identities of the communities that we, you know, set out to serve and are, are we reflecting on our own potential, you know, our, our unconscious bias, the way in which our, our background and identity is influencing those decisions? And so I think we've got to go forward with confidence and argue for both social and economic development can support these activities, but really work very hard to diversify ourselves as a workforce. And I'm really hoping you're going to tell me that this is a solved uh, problem over with you, because I, I think from our point of view, there are really fundamental questions about 
you know, who becomes a librarian? How do we encourage more people to aspire to this as a, a role? And how do we really set out a, a much more diverse identity for our workforce? No, we haven't solved it. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry to hear <laughs> um, that. So, um, one, of, one of the key um, issues, I suppose, is the longevity of people who stay in, um, you know, their roles. Uh, and I'm sure this is the same um, for uh England, uh, you know, sort of is that you do stay in your roles for a long time. You usually don't even move councils. Uh, yes, we have some, you know, sort of highly uh, effective and ambitious uh, libraries, librarians who have careers and have gone on to do amazing things that may not be uh, in libraries, but maybe in councils or wider uh, government uh, institutions. But predominantly, a lot of people stay for a long time. In my own library service that I'm now the CEO of, we have people who've been there for over 30 years. Uh, so they they came to us, um, you know, as a 16-year-old, as a volunteer shelver, uh, and they've had their whole career and their whole uh, working life in one li library service. And, yes, uh, they are predominantly white, predominantly female, and uh, predominantly of an age uh, that uh, you and I are not admitting to, Nick. <laughs> and, uh, so, so I do agree. One of the key things that I've been very uh, pleased to hear about and see and discuss with our Scandinavian uh, industry and the librarians in the Scandinavian industry is the move to having us not choose and not decide and that they move to a much more participatory way of being uh, so that the community can uh, um, being brought in as decision makers for some key aspects of both programs, of both collections, uh, you know, sort of new strategic direction. And this takes a lot of time and they've invested a lot of time in having those communities be much more democratic and so that librarians actually don't make that decision. So, yes, there is still a budget, uh, if you like, uh, so maybe that's the, the librarian's decision, it, but it's also the community's decision because that's the council that allocates the budget and they vote the council in. But there's a lot more of bringing the community in to help shape uh, what we deliver. So how could we do that in the UK and Australia? And I've been really thinking about this because librarians traditionally have a, have a vast um, pride and a vast sense of self that what we're doing is good and we do it for the community. But how can we move to an industry that is facilitates not only equity, which means we give the, the leg up to the person who needs the leg up, and not, it's not equality, it's equity. Uh, so we, we put our, our emphasis on those that need it. However, that we build in the, the power that they choose so that we're working with that community rather than doing for that community or doing to that community. So how do we as an industry let go of the power because we've got the power to say yes or no and to build, and it's to build the capacity of the community to choose. It's not about, oh, well, you choose. 
It's to build that participatory knowledge, you know, the the way to make, you know, sort of to inform, the way to actually get the community to to build it. And could we do that with a teenage council and they get to choose uh, what activities are done in the school holiday? Do we actually build, how do we build that opportunity to meet the community and allow choice and decision uh, within that community? It's really hard. I do not believe that it's easy. Uh, it is making sure that the community has all of the information so they can make a decision that includes all of that information. But could we move much more to that, which means that we're facilitating conversation and we move to that facilitation community role rather than a, we, we know what's good for you, we'll do it for you and you come and learn from us and aren't we great? I think this is a dialogue we're really wanting to, to drive over here as well. Um, our view, I guess, is that the the kind of democratising impact of the web, so you reduce the barriers of entry to learning and to knowledge, has disrupted um, old social norms, which are about the ownership of content, the control of access to knowledge environments. So we, we talk a lot more about things like the learning com commons, the knowledge uh, commons over here. But I think all of that change has happened phenomenally quickly, you know, to an industry that's 100, 150 years uh, in the making over the last 10 or 20 years. Some of those fundamental rules are, are being recoded, you know, every day and, and in real time. And so there is this process that we see of, of how do you renegotiate the contract between the library and the community. And I think exactly as you say, the only way we're going to do that is is through a sort of honest and authentic process of community participation, co-design, empowering people to take ownership of, of the services that they use. And I think the the really challenging thing we're seeing in that negotiation is how you, you renegotiate that contract while preserving the role of information professional expertise. You know, that the, there is subject knowledge, subject expertise. There's, a, you know, a good and bad ways of managing knowledge and information to maximise access and empowerment. So how do you adjust a role that used to be about ownership and control into one that's about facilitation, stewardship, empowerment? And I think that's the, the change that the whole industry is going through, but it, it really touches again on, on the point you made earlier about the longevity of uh, a career in libraries. You know, similarly, our research over here shows we have a, a surprisingly high proportion of people who stay in, in not only in the same organisation, but the same job for 25 to 30 years. And if you've had a, a dramatic shift in the rules of society and engagement with information over the course of that 30-year career, you have to be able to unlearn, relearn, change the way that you think about the nature of that relationship. And, and I guess as a professional body for the UK library community, we've got uh, an entire professional community that are just at different points in that transition. So some people are, you know, right over on the far end. We have a, a really exciting initiative going on in our, our libraries in um, the county of Cambridgeshire here being led by William Seacart and an organisation called Civic, which is reimagining libraries through a process of community participation and co-design. On the other end, we have, you know, some people who are really profoundly disturbed about the the loss of authority, of, of control, of controlled information environments. And so I think what we're seeing is, is that it's going to take five to ten years to enable the whole of our, our profession to make that um, that shift. But there are some really exciting 
kind of emerging practices. So looking at things like, um, you know, patron-driven acquisition in the higher education library sector over here, where we're looking very hard at how do you decolonize a curriculum that's built up around telling a single story of kind of Western cultural development and and working with people honestly and authentically. I, I think you're totally right. It has to be the solution uh, to finding our way through that. Could I just maybe jump in and ask a question just to maybe clarify things on our end as well? Um, so I'm also thinking that there, there must be a difference between libraries as, a, as an institution and librarians as individuals as well. So I think that really my question is, who then makes the decision to drive an agenda or what um, programmes to put on or what services to offer as well? Because, Jane, you said right at the beginning about story time telling and including the the stories about refugees and that there's not one traditional family um but isn't that a political decision and then who who makes that decision as well um would it be the institution or do librarians have a choice as well behind them and then doesn't that differ from librarian to librarian as well Yes, I mean, if, if I might jump in on, on this one, uh, we've just been um, uh, revising the Code of Ethics for library and information professionals over here in the UK. And the big discussion there was, is this an individual ethics or is it an institutional ethics? So, you know, you've got the ethics of librarians in terms of opposing censorship, uh, accountability, uh, social justice, human rights, e- equalities and diversity. Um, but those librarians work in an institutional context where the policies of the organisation may differ very significantly. And, and we're currently in a position over here where public libraries are run as part of uh, local government, um, which is having its own sort of economic uh, difficulties, but also has a, a different set of values. So they see libraries not as a, uh, an ethical place or, or not in terms of the ethos of equality and, and universality, but as a, an expedient front desk for council services. Um, and so there is a real battle here in terms of uh, ethical librarians working in um, an institutional context where they can't perform those ethics. And, you know, one of the key places where that's become apparent is internet filtering. Uh, you know, we, we have some of the most prohibitive internet filtering policies uh, in the world in public libraries in, in the UK. Um, but those are not applied by librarians, not even applied by the library. They tend to be applied by uh, the local government's uh, information technology department that, that runs policies across uh, schools, libraries, bin collection uh, and the council offices. Um, so I, I think you raise a, a really fundamental question about how do you perform uh, the ethics of our profession uh, in an institutional context that's really at odds with, with those values. Yes, and I suppose that you are then kind of seen as going against your employer as well if <laughs> you have a different viewpoint and want to drive home a different kind of service than what maybe your budget or your political kind of aspects allow you to as well. So in Australia, I can only speak for the two states, which are Queensland and Victoria, There are state government funds which are allocated to the local government for uh, public library services. Now, they make up about 12% of the overall operating costs, but they are still significant. So for each council to accept those funds, they accept the Public Library UNESCO manifesto and they accept the earlier statement of freedom of access to information which means that you could argue 
uh, significantly against filtering because it must be the freedom of access to information uh, for, to get those funds. So for, so for councils to go against any of those ethical statements could mean, I haven't seen it ever happen, but could mean that council would not gain, and, you know, in, in some instances it's $4 million, it's $2 million. It's not insignificant funds, but it's still very minimal in the overall operational costs. So there is actually money <laughs> attached to signing up to those ethics. And one of the key issues for library managers is how do what is the concern of council around and why the need for filtering is there? What is the concern? And if the concern is that young people have access to pornography, uh, one of the key issues is that the library manager must convince council that the policies and responses that they have in place will ensure that appropriate behaviour in a public space is enabled, that we are active in this role and that children will not have access to pornography. Now, theoretically, they can on the Wi-Fi anyway, uh, however, if on a public PC, you know, sort of the, somebody is looking at pornography, your staff must be enabled to switch it off, yeah. must have the skills to approach the person and say, I've, it's been reported that you're looking at pornography. They say, no, I'm not. And you say, well, fantastic. Can you continue not to look at pornography? Because if I get another complaint, your session will be terminated and you will be asked to leave. You know, that we actually have that confidence and skills to address those issues at the time it happens. If council is really confident that we act, that the public PCs are in a public place, you know, sort of that it is not appropriate to it what you do in your own home is up to you i do not judge anybody on what they read on how they read what they view on the internet it is up to them uh, however you cannot do it in a public place such as a public library there are appropriate uh, images and appropriate uh, viewing within a public library space and you enforce that you have the policies you have the skill set and you give council the real confidence and the community the confidence that you are active in this space. And if you don't do that, uh, if council isn't confident, if library staff are not confident to approach people, and can I say library staff hate it and don't like it and wish that they couldn't, and some library staff actually would want filtering because then they don't have to do it. Uh, so, you know, we, we really need to build the skill set in this area. So what is it that council is worried about and why do they not have confidence that library staff and libraries can actually manage it? So, you know, I, I think we need to really think about that and, and build a library uh, team and build uh, a library skill set that is really confident in the community engagement, community development, because that's actually community development. You've got to tell somebody off in a really polite, really strong, really firm way. Uh, you've got to have the policies in place that back you up, uh, you know, sort of, and you've got to have the support in place uh, where a person can be escorted off the premises. So, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's all of those issues. And if you're in a really tough area, if your um, staff are tired, 
if they don't feel confident, if there's no policy to back them up, you know, there's nothing that can be pointed to if council isn't going to support them. You know, there's a whole lot of uh, issues around that. But I, I think in terms of the institution, you're right, Vicky, that sometimes it is about going against the institution. But instead of going against the institution, our role then is to persuade the institution that they need to move on this issue. And so if yep. there is uh, an issue, uh, for example, around um, inclusion about LGBTQI people, um, then, you know, sort of the library service should be leading actively a council staff response about becoming more inclusive so that they can persuade the council that it is okay to put up a rainbow poster. Um, I don't think libraries, you know, sort of, and th this is where I think that a lot of younger um, librarians who want us to be more active don't understand the political nature of what we've got to negotiate, but they have to see that we're acting. Uh, so, and I think, uh, you know, sort of we should be visible in, in that act. I don't think we should be the enforcer uh, around, well, council said this, you can't do drag time story time. Um, but I think if you're going to do drag time story time and you've got a deeply homophobic community and a very fundamentalist Christian community and you haven't had that discussion with the community and brought them along and have the, the drag time story time in two years, you know, you have to actually bring the community with you uh, and you have to bring council with you. So if that's your aim, then step out that project and think about, you know, sort of how to bring, uh, you know, sort of everybody with you to the point. However, I do think in terms of an inclusive collection, uh, you know, Rainbow Reads List, I have a blog post about the actual huge impact on a young gay, uh, uh, young teenager in a deeply homophobic town and that the Rainbow Read List, it wasn't a big poster, it was a Rainbow Read List that was at the counter in the teen section, saved her life because she, would have, she was at a suicidal point in her life. And she wrote back to the library 10 years later about why it was still important to her and she still had that list. So I think you can do small actions that have big impacts, but you should be working towards the bigger um, persuasion of council, um, you know, sort of over time. I think that's a brilliant way of, of putting it. And, and I suppose we were talking recently to some uh, librarians who work in on the other side in, in kind of security services over here. And, and they were talking a lot about how they make informed choices about the balance between safety from harm and freedoms. And I suppose their way of looking at it is anything you do that inhibits freedoms has to be justifiable and it has to be transparent and accountable. And so I, I think there's something around how we can drive practice in our institutions to make sure that these policies are transparent, but also that we, we really use this educative role about informing and empowering library users um, to know what's being done with their information, to know the decisions that are being made in the interests of their, their safety and security. 
And so we uh, we worked last year on a review of the role of librarians in privacy and confidentiality. And what we found is that we really, really have to educate people, and particularly uh, younger people, about um, the way that the data-driven economy works uh, and the relationship between their data and government in the state, the relationship between their data and the services and platforms that they use every day and so that the most fundamental thing in this equation is an informed and empowered citizen uh, who understands the, the choices that are being made i think the other thing we can do perhaps less at an individual library level but more at a, a sort of professional level is, is rather than responding to legislation so rather than looking at the implications of, of legislation around security privacy access to data i really feel we should be helping to drive that legislation i think we should be using our ethics and our insights as information professionals to make informed balanced choices on behalf of our society so that we keep people safe but also maximize the benefits of access to knowledge i absolutely agree nick and i, I think our um Silic, alia ifla have a huge role to play in in positioning the library industry to have a voice at that table, and uh, you know I think the uh, work that Ali has done around school libraries, around public libraries, around you know sort of case studies for STEM, around you know sort of the case studies around data, uh, and you know sort of how we use our also our um, authority around the librarianship courses and you know sort of the new librarians being churned out that that has a data you know sort of role within the course so that we're bringing librarians out who are very au fait with the data conversation with what you know sort of a data scientist is with what privacy is with with that whole issue of looking at our contracts and understanding what we're signing over in the cloud library. I recently um, saw a complaint from a library member about a library who provided the cloud library, which is a set of e-books, like it's a, a set that you only pay a rent on. Uh, however, when researching that big suite of uh, collection, the library staff had not understood that it was a fundamental Christian uh, uh, set that uh, was a far-right set that did not have a balanced collection, that was anti-gay, you know, that significant proportions of that collection was not balanced. You know, sort of, so yes, while it did have quite a lot of popular things in there, it, you know, we have to actually be much more aware of what we're providing uh, in the uh, digital world and also what is happening to the data that our patrons entrust to us. Because in actual fact, when you look at the vendors in the e-libraries, does the library control that data? Right. Does the library control the reading data? You know, sort of, or is that only owned by the vendor? You know, sort of, does the vendor then have access directly from vendor to library patron via email. We, we need to actually interrogate and understand these contracts much more, I think. Um, so I agree with you, Nick, that, you know, sort of not only do we have to position the library industry to have a say at the wider legislation level, 
but we actually have to make sure that library managers at the practical level have an understanding of how to assess contracts and how to assess what is happening to their library data, their library patrons' data. And I'm not sure that that is understood across the board. So we need to have those conversations. Uh, I think it is something absolutely that our um, associations have a role to play because that is standard across all. So we don't have to do it, you know, sort of 1,200 times. There's 1,200 libraries in Australia. Uh, that we do it once and then everybody has access to that piece of information. And so I do think uh, that our associations have a role to play. Also, our, you know, councils, we, we have our academic university librarians councils, we have um, our National Australian State and Library Association, you know, that at these national um, conversations that and, and committees that this is the type of uh, subjects that's on their agendas. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is something that we can talk about all day and can probably continue for another eight hours, I think. <laughs> um, but maybe just to round, round things off, could I maybe just hear um, how you both want to um, see um, or have libraries be seen in the future in regards to library neutrality from the visitor side of things? Do you think that they are currently seen as a safe place? So from my point of view, Vicky, uh, um, I would hope that the community would feel, would associate neutral with safe, that they feel that it's safe to come and have a conversation in uh, Australia, 40% of our teenagers, uh, the, the recent survey, say that they have a mental health issue. Uh, so that's 40% and they do not go to anyone for help. So where where would they actually find out and be able to feel safe to find out, uh, you know, sort of how they're feeling and to explore that mental health issue? Where do families go for help? They don't want to go to the doctor or the hospital because that means they're sick. Where could we actually think about this public health um, component that we know is national? Where is a safe place to have these debates where I'm not stigmatised to go and listen to the information? Where is the place where we can have a debate about belonging, exclusion, who feels included, who feels excluded? Where do we have some of those conversations? And I think libraries are really well positioned to start providing some of that community conversation. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're really good at it yet. But I think that that could be somewhere where in the future that the library takes an active role to start bringing some people together. We have done it in, in different ways with our human libraries, you know, sort of where you can check out a human and actually hear their story so that we personalise some of the hate you know, this is a real person. It's not, um, you know, a Muslim, a Jew, a black person, a white person, uh, whatever the person is excluded, uh, that we actually make them human and tell their stories. And I think I would like to feel that that is the avenue of neutral, is that everybody has a place. Not that everybody has a voice, but that everybody has a place and that we actually start to have some community respectful conversations. Yeah, I would completely agree. I mean, I, I think it's fascinating. Uh, to an extent, I, I think our sector went into a sort of existential crisis or certainly an identity crisis when 
digital disruption happened. And I, I think we'd had a hundred years of smash hit that were defined really uh, by our form rather than our function, you know, the, the form of a red brick building with a book collection on, on shelves. Whereas actually what really matters uh, is the function, a place of knowledge and, and learning, as Jane says, a, a safe trusted environment where where everybody finds their space and everybody knows that they are uh, universally welcome and I think what's really exciting is that we've rediscovered the role of public libraries in a digital age kind of post disruption which is about places of safety and trust it is about engagement and participation it is about dialogue and reconciliation I think it's about universal empowerment so in, in some ways I think we need to move on beyond the question of, of our neutrality and accept that there is really no such thing as neutral, but that what we can be is ethical, accountable, transparent, uh, and reflective, uh, and then really go forward and celebrate that new role. I actually think it's back to the future, isn't it really, Nick? You know, sort of that we, we've almost gone back to the Mechanics Institutes of the past where we are about that access for people who were excluded from learning. That You know, we are a space where you can access any opportunity that you want, where it's self-determined. But I do think even the social inclusion, we need to be more intentional about. So when we get back to get people together and we say we're combating loneliness, do we actually have a space in our programs where people actually get to meet somebody? So please introduce yourself to somebody you don't know, that we actually act. I think we need to be more intentional about some of that social inclusion, and I think we need to be more intentional about those safe spaces or the spaces where everyone is welcome, even if you are considered other. I, I couldn't agree more. Definitely. That's great. Well, thank you both so much um, for such an interesting discussion on library neutrality. Um it's been a real privilege to speak to you both as our first guests on the French Library Lounge. And um, if anyone listens today and wants to reach out to discuss anything um, following on from today's discussion, is there anywhere that they can find you? Uh, DM me on Twitter uh, at jancal 8 Absolutely. Likewise, I'm at nickpool one and Philip is at philipinfo. And this is a conversation we would love to continue. Perfect. Okay, great. Well, thank you both so much. And thank you to everyone that's listening as well. Thanks, Vicky. Thank you, Vicky. Thanks very much. Thanks again for listening to the French Library Lounge. If you are interested to know more about today's episode or the podcast, you can check out our website, fringe.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and spread the word to other library professionals. We will be back next month for episode two with another great guest. Happy librarian!